0: It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. The Dow is continuing to rebound this week. Up 148 points today, 25,702 was the close. And in fact, the Dow would be higher if it weren't for about an 11% decline in Boeing so far this week. In fact, I'm going to talk on this podcast about the controversy surrounding Boeing and their 737 MAX 8 aircraft. Uh, But for now, I want to talk just about the markets. And I actually think that it was the big gap down uh, on Monday morning, where Boeing uh, first, uh, you know, reacted to the news of the of the crash of their of uh, of their plane, and the Dow was down better than 200 points, all of it uh, the big drop in Boeing. And I think traders looked at that news as a opportunity to buy into the recent dip, and I think you saw uh, people rushing in at that point, and that kind of marked a short term bottom in the market, and now we're back up around the highs of this bear market correction. I do believe that we're gonna be running into resistance again at this area but that was probably just an opportunity for some people they saw that dip and they rushed in and they bought other stocks i mean typically there is some kind of news event that would coincide with some type of inflection point in the market i don't think it's a significant low i just think it is a low in an ongoing process this bear market rally this correction in the bear market uh, is not ending quickly but i do believe it is ending and i think the smarter money is selling into this rally. You know, the economic news, it was, I guess, a couple of uh, uh, items that came out this week were a little bit better than estimates, but look at the retail sales number that came out on Monday. I mean, that one, to me, still confirms that the numbers that we got in December were not a fluke. I mean, a lot of people initially dismissed the weak number in December. The initial report for December retail sales was minus 1.2. And they were looking for a rebound in January, and they got one, although they were only looking for a rebound of 0.1, and we got a rebound of 0.2. But they actually revised the prior month that was originally reported as down 1.2. That moved to down 1.6, so an even bigger decline in December than was originally reported. Remember, this is a 10-year low or the worst uh, retail sales number in 10 years. And if you X out autos, the decline last month was revised from down 1.8 to down 2.1 in the month. Uh, It was, the bounce back was a little bit better than they expected from 0.3 to 0.9, but we bounced back off of a lower number. But still, if you look at the retail sales over the two months, December, January, it is extremely weak. And I would expect that to continue. In fact, one of the factors that is going to be weighing on consumer spending is going to be rising gasoline prices. I mean, look what happened to West Texas Light crude today: uh, up a dollar forty-five a barrel. Fifty-eight sixty-five was the close. This is the first close for this calendar year above fifty-eight. I mean, I think we're up like twenty-seven percent or so this year. Remember, one of the reasons the Fed is pretending that they're not worried about inflation is because gas prices have been falling. Well, they haven't been falling this year. At least oil prices have been rising, and that means pump prices are going to follow too. You know, The only time we had a big drop in oil prices was late last year in the fourth quarter when QE was on autopilot and the Fed was forecasting four rate hikes uh, for 2019. That is the only reason that we saw the sharp drop in the price of oil. But now that the Fed has backed away from those hikes and no longer has QT on autopilot, oil prices are coming back. And, you know, the last couple of times that oil prices looked like they were about to break out, Donald Trump came out with a tweet, critical of Saudi Arabia. Hey, oil prices are getting too high. You better watch out. I mean, he no longer tries to talk the oil price down. He tries to tweet the oil price down. So I kind of expected Trump to come out today and tweet something about it. Didn't do it. I guess maybe he had other things on his mind, but maybe he'll be out there tomorrow trying to keep the oil price down because that is part of the Trump economy is to keep oil prices as low as possible. Never Trump has been taking credit Uh, For the lower oil prices. So it's just going to be another problem for him uh, when the low oil prices turn into high oil prices. Just like everything else that Trump has promised, the opposite is being delivered. Uh, you know he talked about paying down and paying off the national debt at one point and now of course the budget deficits are skyrocketing the national debt is skyrocketing he we were losing on trade uh, so he was going to tackle the trade deficits the trade deficits are now bigger than ever he imposed tariffs on Chinese products Americans that want to buy Chinese products yet the deficit with China is also the largest ever so, Oil prices starting to go up again would just be another problem that the president does not need. But, of course, the biggest problem in the U.S. economy is that the big, fat, ugly bubble, uh, and that's the way Donald Trump used to describe the economy before he was the president, is deflating. And the air is coming out, and maybe some people are starting to get a little bit worried. And I think that is the reason that they sent Jerome Powell to 60 Minutes. You know, he was on there. This is part of a a confidence, uh, you know, road show, dog and pony show, to bring out not just the sitting Federal Reserve chairman, but his two most recent predecessors, all on 60 Minutes, as I mentioned on my last podcast, to reassure the nation that there's nothing to worry about, that even though they've, indicated that they're going to be patient now and they're not going to keep raising interest rates. And um, even though they've indicated that they're not likely to shrink their balance sheet on autopilot like they once said, but that they're likely going to finish the process this year, that even though they're doing that, there is nothing to worry about. The U.S. economy is in great shape. It's going to grow close to 3% for all of 2019 even though the first quarter looks like it's going to come in sub-1%. I mean, it may even come in sub-zero. We'll see. We may even have a contraction in the first quarter. But if we do get an expansion, it looks like it's going to be a very, very modest expansion, which means that the rest of the year, the second, third, and fourth quarter, are going to have to be gangbusters to make up for the weakness in in Q1. But the Fed is out there reassuring everybody that there's nothing at all to worry about. In fact, I think one of the only specific problems that was brought up in the interview was the delinquencies in in car loans. And I think it wasn't even the delinquencies or just the record, maybe the record uh, absolute dollar value of the delinquencies, which is not the most significant point, because obviously we have more loans in default because we have more loans, right? We have a record amount. Auto loan debt is at an all-time record high. So you would expect that delinquencies would also be at an all-time record high. But what you wouldn't expect is the delinquency rate to be at an all-time record high. That is the percentage of the loans that are delinquent. And delinquent means you haven't made a payment in three months or more. Right. So you just didn't forget to make your payment. You're talking about somebody who hasn't made a car payment three consecutive months. Right. That's not an oversight. Those payments aren't being made because the guy can't afford to make them. Right. And the fact that the rate of delinquencies is at the highest it's been in 10 years is very significant because 10 years ago, unemployment was 10 percent. It would make sense that people don't have jobs, right, and they don't have incomes. Well, then maybe they don't have the ability to make their car payments. Remember, so many Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And if you're unemployed, you don't get the paycheck. And so maybe you can't make your car payment. But if unemployment is just 3.8%, which is the official rate that Trump keeps bragging about, why are delinquencies as high now as they were when unemployment was 10%? And if people can't make their car payments now while well, they have jobs, what happens in the next recession when they don't have any jobs? So Powell was asked about this. Is, is he concerned? And he really just brushed it off, number one, by alluding to the fact that, well, you know, we have, you know, record amounts of debt, right? So you would expect to have higher delinquencies without addressing the key Uh, aspect of it meaning the delinquency rate not just the level of loans that are in default but then he said well you know I guess it just goes to show you that this widespread prosperity that we've been enjoying is not reaching everybody which I thought was a bit ironic if you think about it because if the prosperity was widespread well then it would be reaching just about everybody right isn't that what Widespread means that like it's spread wide over the country. It's like everybody is enjoying this prosperity. I mean, the reason we have the problems that we do when it comes to people paying their auto loans or their student loans or even credit card debt is because there is no widespread Prosperity. There is some prosperity, but it's very narrow. It isn't widely spread out. It's concentrated among people who own a lot of assets, people who benefited from quantitative easing and artificially low interest rates, people that have stock portfolios or other investments that benefited from the Fed's monetary policy. But ordinary Americans who are just working for wages and have been living paycheck to paycheck, they've seen their standard of living go down. The cost of living has been going up. Uh, faster than their nominal pay increases and so they are uh, going deeper and deeper into the hole but that was basically the only real domestic problem that was brought up in fact Powell was asked point blank you know what are you worried about you know what do you see that concerns you about the U.S. economy and basically he didn't see anything everything was great there's nothing that concerns him in the domestic economy right I mean, not the record amount of debt, right? Not the record budget deficits that are spiraling out of control, even when the economy is growing, not the national debt, not the fact that interest rates are rising, making that national debt harder and harder to service, let alone repay, not the skyrocketing trade deficits, not the potential for tariffs and a trade war and, and more protection, That doesn't worry the Fed chairman. He's not worried about um, the housing market. He's not worried about the auto market. He's not worried about underfunded pensions uh, in the private sector, in the public sector. He's not worried about massive amount of debt in corporate America and all the, uh, you know, junk bonds or bonds that are barely above junk status that are likely to be downgraded uh, to junk bonds over the coming years. He's not worried about the municipalities and the states that are loaded up with debt, you know, or individuals. I mean, there are so many things that you should worry about, yet Powell isn't worried about any of them, nothing, right? Obviously he can't be this clueless. I mean, he's just there to paint a rosy picture to dry, try to engender confidence that all is well, right? Because the Fed has to come up with an excuse as to why it stopped its normalization of interest rates. Remember, I always said that the Fed was going to stop raising rates at some point once they started. Granted, they were able to get a lot more rate hikes in than I first believed. And again, I think that's all because of Donald Trump. You know, Had Trump not won, I think it would have been one and done. I think I would have been right on that. I think the Fed would have stopped after its first rate hike, and we'd already be back at zero. We'd already be doing more QE because we'd already be in the recession. Uh, So Trump enabled the Fed to get a few more rate hikes in than I believe, but now the Fed has stopped. But I always said that the Fed was going to look for an excuse for stopping because they couldn't tell the truth. They couldn't say the real reason they had to abort uh, their campaign prematurely, so they had to come up with an excuse. And the excuse is, Weakness in the overseas economies, weakness in Europe, weakness in Asia, fears over Brexit, right? Everything that worries. Powell, is something that's happening abroad. See, nothing worries him that's happening in the U.S., which obviously can't be true unless he's completely incompetent. So he is out there to lie to the American public on 60 Minutes, which obviously is a show that a lot more people watch, uh, you know, than CNBC or something like that, where he, you know, they may normally show clips. So he's trying to reach a broader audience by going on 60 Minutes and telling everybody that there's nothing to worry about. Everything is great. In fact, it wasn't just Jerome Powell who was on 60 Minutes. It was both of his uh, predecessors. Janet Yellen was there and Ben Bernanke. And they were all saying how great everything is, right? They, we brought out three Fed chairmen to make sure that we know that there's nothing to worry about. That the Fed stopped raising interest rates and they're patient, not because there's anything you know, wrong in the U.S. economy. It's all because of some problems overseas And, you know, the the Fed just wants to be patient just to make sure that whatever illness is happening abroad, that we don't catch it. Right. You know, that we don't get infected by their problems because they don't want to admit that the real problem is in America. We can't raise rates because we can't afford it because we have too much debt thanks to the Federal Reserve, because they kept interest rates so low for so long, we borrowed so much money that it's impossible to normalize interest rates because we have an abnormal amount of debt. The reason they have to stop shrinking their balance sheet is because they can't do it because the budget deficits are exploding and the Fed can't add to the problem by shrinking its balance sheet. And what Powell hasn't said is that, by the way, what we're going to have to do is go back to quantitative easing because the deficits are so big, uh, and air is coming out of this bubble. We're going to have to buy even more bonds. The balance sheet's going to get a lot bigger. In fact, we're going to have to cut interest rates back to zero. They haven't let that cat out of the bag yet, but they're still trying to say that the problems, you know, are abroad and they believe they're contained. Right? What they're really saying is the weakness that we're seeing in the global economy is contained to the global economy, the foreign, but it, and it's not spilling over into the U.S., but we're going to be patient just in case, right? We don't know for sure. We think the problems are contained abroad, but just in case we're going to be patient, uh, you know, because... There's no reason why we can't be because inflation is so low. Uh, There's no reason that we have to be aggressive when we could just, you know, be patient. Even though we don't think anything bad is going to happen, we're going to be patient just in case. And, you know, it's all very reminiscent of the attitude that the Fed had to the subprime mortgage crisis. Because remember, when the subprime crisis uh, first emerged, everybody was surprised by it, of course, I was waiting for that. I had been warning about it for years. But when the crisis first hit, the the common theme, and it was everybody from Ben Bernanke at uh, at the Fed all the way on down, everybody was saying that nothing to worry about because the problem is contained to subprime, right? It's it's not going to spill over or infect the broader mortgage market the prime mortgage market is fine it's only this small sliver of mortgages that we call subprime that's where we have a problem but it's contained and of course it's also contained in that it's not going to affect the overall economy it may have a small effect on a small part of the housing market but it's not going to impact the overall economy that's what everybody was saying except for me i was saying that's crazy and it wasn't that i believed that the problems were going to move from subprime to prime, that you know, prime was going to catch you know the disease from subprime. My point was always that subprime was just the, the weakest link in the chain, so it snapped first, or maybe uh, subprime simply showed the symptoms earlier because subprime mortgages you know were unhealthier to begin with right but that the disease that was showing up first in subprime that that disease already existed in the healthier mortgages in in prime it was going to just take longer for the prime mortgages to you know exhibit the symptoms that were already evident in the subprime mortgages, which were already sicker. So I didn't think it was about the disease spreading. I just said the whole market is already affected. It's only a matter of time until we see the symptoms every place else. And of course I was right. That's exactly what happened. And I also said that it's not contained even the housing, that so much of our economy was built on the foundation of the housing bubble. So much of the consumer spending that was driving GDP growth came from home equity extractions and the wealth effect. And I said that if the housing market goes down, the economy is going down with it. That was something that the Fed was oblivious to until after the fact. Well, now they're they're making the same mistakes with the weaknesses that they're seeing in Pockets of the global economy. And they're saying, well, we think it's contained, right? It's not going to spread into the United States, but maybe it will. My point is, whatever problems we're seeing in some of the global economy, the problems are already here in the US economy. It's just that the problems are rising to the surface a little bit faster, or those are the problems that the markets for now are fixated on, and they are actually ignoring uh, a lot of the larger problems that are taking place in the US. In fact, a lot of the, the weakness that we've seen abroad is a result of the tight monetary policy at the Fed at the end of last year when the Fed was talking about autopilot QT and all these rate hikes that were coming. Uh, the the world was bracing for that. That's why oil prices really dropped. Emerging markets got whacked because people were afraid that these massive budget deficits were going to be financed at the expense of uh, the rest of the economy, that the U.S. government was going to have to suck up capital. It was going to be a crowding out of investment capital around the world because the Fed was going to keep shrinking its balance sheet and the government had these rising debts. And it was also the idea that somehow the trade war was going to impact uh, the global economy more so than the U.S. After all, the U.S. didn't have all the exports. We just imported as if that meant that we didn't have anything to fear or anything to lose when we actually had a lot more to lose. So it was a lot of what was going on in America That was affecting the global economy, not the other way around. It wasn't that problems abroad might seep into the U.S., but problems in the U.S. had already uh, been exported to the rest of the world. And I think now that the Fed has backed away from those threats, I think you're going to see a strengthening, a rebound in the global economies, which ironically is actually the worst thing that can happen to the U.S. economy. You know, there's an old saying again, be careful what you wish for. And, you know, a lot of people are hoping that, oh, yeah, we want a strong economy abroad because that will help our export earnings. It'll help the S&P 500. You know, we'll get a somewhat weaker dollar and that'll be good for, for our exports. Look, the best thing that the U.S. economy has going for it right now is that, people are worried about the foreign markets, the weakness abroad. That's our strength, right? The idea that America is the cleanest, dirty shirt in the hamper. If, you know, all the other shirts are in that hamper, now people, you know, the the dollar looks better for some reason, right? If people are worried about Europe or they're worried about Japan, they're worried about China, whatever, they buy dollars, right? People still reflexively Look at the dollar as this safe haven currency. And it is a self-fulfilling prophecy in that if people perceive it as a safe haven, well, then they buy it. And buying it pushes it up, which reinforces its safe haven status. But America benefits when everybody is worried about problems abroad. And as a result of that, they buy dollars. What does that do for America? Well, a stronger dollar keeps a lid on consumer prices for Americans, and it keeps a lid on interest rates for Americans. So Americans get to buy more stuff for less money, and they get to borrow the money at a lower rate of interest. So all that helps the bubble economy. And also, if people are buying into dollars and buying into dollar-denominated assets, they're buying stocks, they're buying bonds, Maybe they're even buying real estate. So it helps sustain asset prices. So it helps keeps consumer prices and interest rates low, and it keeps asset prices high. That's a double win. So the worse things get abroad, the better things get in the United States. But it works the same way in reverse. See, when there is less fear, less uncertainty surrounding the global economy, when people have a more optimistic outlook on global growth, right? Well, they don't need the dollar as a safe haven. And now the dollar starts to fall. And what does that do? Well, that undoes all the good stuff that a strong dollar brought. That means that puts upward pressure on retail prices, consumer prices in the United States. That puts upward pressure on U.S. interest rates, and it also puts downward pressure on U.S. assets because there's no longer demand for U.S. Treasury bonds, U.S. stocks, U.S. real estate. Now people want to invest more internationally. They want to bring their money home because they don't want the safe haven anymore. Now they want to take more, you know, they're looking for more growth. So that's actually going to hurt the U.S. economy. So when the Federal Reserve is saying, oh, we're worried about weakness abroad, Weakness abroad is the only thing standing between us and the next crisis. It's when the global economy starts to strengthen, that's when the Fed is really in trouble or the U.S. economy. Because then as the dollar weakens, now you're going to see this upward pressure on consumer prices. So inflation is going to be picking up just as the U.S. bubble economy is going to be deflating. We're going to be going into recession at the same time that the global economy is starting a brand new Uh, expansion and that is going to be the decoupling that is going to be the big divergence uh, that I have been predicting and waiting for for many many years and I think we are finally getting to the point where that is going to become a reality I said earlier too in the in the podcast I wanted to talk a little bit about what's going on with with Boeing and the second crash of a 737 Max 8 aircraft in less than a year I forget maybe seven months apart and, and and both of these planes crashed under similar circumstances, right? So the first time it happens, okay, you know, you know what what happened? Maybe it was a fluke. Was there a pilot error? What, what went on? But then when it, it happens again so soon, I mean, air crashes, right? Airlines rarely crash. But when you have two planes that are the exact same model, and they're new planes. These are not really old planes that maybe there's something wrong with them. These are relatively new You know, freshly built uh, planes by Boeing going down, I think, what, within 5, 10, 15 minutes or something of takeoff, they go down. And and when I first read about this, the, the day of the first crash on Monday, and I'm reading that this particular plane, because of the way it's designed, it has oversized engines, and that's what makes it more fuel efficient which is one of the reasons that it is a big seller now is because, you know, airlines can keep their costs down uh, because they get, you know, better, better fuel economy that the, the, the plane actually has a tendency on takeoff for the, the nose to point down or something. And they have some kind of system or software to counteract that or, The pilots have to maybe, you know, know what to do in order to, you know, uh, overcome that problem. Right. The fact that these two planes went down shows me or at least says to me that maybe their countermeasures are not necessarily foolproof and that this plane may in fact be prone to. To accidents that could cause a crash. Now, maybe it's because the particular pilots who were flying this plane, maybe they 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 weren't as experienced as, as other pilots may have been, and maybe more experienced pilots would have known what to do, whatever. But whatever the cause is, as soon as I heard that, and as soon as I read about that, I'm like, you know what? I don't want to fly these planes. I mean, maybe they're perfectly safe, but you know what? There's so many different planes I can choose from. You know, why do I want to worry? about, you know, getting on a plane, you know, for the first 15 minutes or so after takeoff that the thing's going to something's going to happen to it. I mean, I know that if I was on a a 737 Max 8, you know, I I would be worried. And who the hell needs that? Right. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, I mean, I I, I fly a lot. And I, I don't think there's ever a time where I'm on a plane where I don't imagine the plane crashing. Now, I don't know why those thoughts come to my mind. I mean, I get in the car. I drive my car a lot more than I get on a plane. And I never think about getting in a car accident, even though you know a car accident is far more common, right? I'm far more likely to get into a car accident and die, you know, driving to the airport than I am getting in a plane crash and dying, you know, when I'm traveling. But for some reason, you know, those thoughts go into my mind, not to the point where I, I'm legitimately afraid that the plane's gonna crash, because I know statistically. You know, I mean, I probably I have a better chance probably of winning the lottery than being on a plane that crashes. But I think just the idea of, you know, of of a plane going down, I think it's, you know, it's so traumatic. Not that, you know, when the plane crashes, I mean, it's probably instant death. So it's probably not painful. But what you worry about is, you know the time it takes from when you see the plane going down to when it hits the ground, I mean, you're alive and you're thinking and, you know, all the thoughts that have to go through your head, it's very scary to imagine yourself in that situation. So if, you know, there's a plane that, you know, maybe there's a tendency, maybe there's something wrong, right. I'm not going to fly the plane. And I remember, you know, Similar problems, you know, with D.C. I remember the D.C. 10s got into trouble a while ago. People were worried about them. There was an Airbus. I forget the number that people were worried about at one time. And so all of a sudden, so now we have the Boeing 737. And so I'm just like, you know, I'm not going to fly that plane. And, you know, and but all of a sudden, you know, a couple of countries I think China, you know, a few other foreign countries right away. Uh, banned the flight or grounded the planes in some other countries, but the, the FAA was resisting it, right? You know, uh, up until today. Today, just before I did this podcast, uh, Donald Trump came out and announced that he was grounding all these planes, not only the Max 8s, but the Max 9s. I didn't even realize it was a Max 9 until it was part of, of, of the grounding. But there was some controversy because a lot of people were saying, hey, the FAA should, you know, ban these planes. It needs to protect the public. And I what I was thinking is why? Why do we need the FAA? I mean, the public is perfectly capable of not flying these planes, right? Just like I had made a decision on my own, I'm not going to fly uh, a 737 Max 8. I mean, when you go and book your airline ticket, just check what the plane is. It's not hard to do. And if 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 one flight is fl- if one airline is flying that plane, then pick another airline. I mean, it's very simple. Right? You don't have to wait for the government. We're not a bunch of little kids that the government needs to make all these decisions for us. Let individual consumers, if they're afraid, then they won't fly the Boeing. And if enough people start canceling their tickets, they don't want to fly, then the airlines are just going to ground them on their own. I mean, they're not going to let the planes fly around empty, right? I mean, so if people don't want to fly on these planes, then they're not going to fly them, right? And again, either the individual consumer is going to make the decision that he doesn't want to fly on the Boeing 737 Max eight, or the airlines themselves. Look, as, as much as individuals don't want to be in a in a plane crash, right? Believe me, airlines don't want one of their planes to crash, right? I mean, apart from the fact that nobody wants to see uh, other people die, right? But if you own an airliner, your reputation is extremely important with the flying public, and one of the things that is very important is the reputation for safety, which is why we don't even need an FAA in the first place. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the most important thing about a plane, it's not how good the food is or how comfortable the chairs are or how attractive the flight attendants are, which isn't even really viable these days, but the single most important thing is the safety of the plane, right? I want that plane to be safe. I want that plane to land safely on the ground. That's number one. So obviously a reputation for safety is very important for the public. I mean, you can't be an airline, you know, if people are worried that, you know, you're you're cutting corners on your maintenance and your safety, right? If you've got pilots that, you know, don't have a, the, the right amount of training, right? No one's going to buy tickets. These airlines aren't going to be in business. So the biggest PR disaster for an Airline is a plane going down. And of course, the biggest PR disaster for the manufacturer of planes like Boeing is one of their planes crashing, right? Obviously, Boeing has a huge uh, vested interest in their goodwill, their reputation. That has a market value which they want to protect. You know, a lot of liberals out there are socialists think that corporations don't give a damn about their customers. They don't care if they poison them with bad food or you know, or, or cut corners or jeopardize their safety. They couldn't be more wrong. Customers or companies care more about their customers than anybody else certainly more than the government. I mean, what how is the government damaged? Right? If a plane crashes, I mean it doesn't affect you. You got a job at the FAA and a plane crashes. I mean, it's not going to do anything with your reputation. I mean, you're you got a guaranteed government job. You're not going to get fired. It's the it's the private companies. They're the ones that stand to lose the most if their brand gets, you know, they they lose the value of their goodwill with their customers. Right? If people somehow think that Boeing makes bad planes and no one wants to fly Boeing planes, I mean, Boeing's market cap is going to implode. I mean, they have a huge goodwill that's been built up. Right, I think it was Warren Buffett that said it, you know, it takes, I don't know, it's decades to build up a reputation and minutes to lose one. Right, Companies invest a lot of money in building up a reputation for quality and safety. And so they want to do everything they can to preserve the value. Not because they're just a bunch of altruists and they care. They're greedy capitalists and they want to protect the value of their reputation, of their brand, which in many cases is the most valuable asset they possess. So in order to do that, they want to make sure their planes are safe. They want to make sure they don't crash. They want to make sure their pilots are well-trained. They're going to do all that without the government. Right? It's not the government that is going to require companies to protect their brand. They're going to do that on their own. And they're going to do that because of competition with other companies that will do that if they don't. And of course, without the FAA, you know, you could have all sorts of third-party consumer reports that go out and inspect these things and 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 put out their own recommendations, who's got the best planes, who's got the best trained Uh, you know, flight crew and, and best mechanics, whatever. So we don't even need the government. The fact that so many people were waiting for the government to ground these planes. The government doesn't have to do anything. We are individuals. We can decide for ourselves. Do we want to take a chance and fly on a 737 MAX 8 or not? Now, I mean, is it just a coincidence that these two planes went down under similar circumstances? Maybe it is. But why take a chance? That's how I look at it. You know, and until there's some evidence that comes out and really proves this, then, you know, I think these planes are in trouble, you know, and, you know, maybe, you know, maybe Boeing going to have to, you know, scrap these things and, you know, come up with a different design. I don't know. But we don't need the government telling us what to do. We don't have to wait for the government. Individuals can make a decision not to fly the planes. And uh, the airlines, could make a decision not to fly them. Now, I know the airlines, you know, obviously if the government bans them, that makes it a little easier for them to explain to their customers, you know, why they canceled these flights. I mean, maybe there were some of the flight attendants that didn't want to, you know, didn't want to work on these planes because maybe they were nervous. And, you know, I don't blame them, right? I mean, they're on these planes all the time, so I guess the uh, FAA coming out and grounding them uh, takes some of the pressure off because now you know now they're not going to fly. The bottom line is individuals, free market competition is your best defense. That that is the reason that we have so few airline crashes. It's not because of the government. It's because the airline companies don't want their planes to crash because they won't be able to sell tickets. The companies that manufacture planes don't want their planes to crash. Otherwise, they're not gonna be able to sell their planes. That is your best defense against crashes. It's not government bureaucrats who really couldn't give a damn about anything because they have nothing on the line and are probably, you know, very susceptible to bribes and kickbacks and stuff like this, but it's the actual owners of these businesses who have their own invested capital uh, to protect, their own reputations. And their own goodwill. You know, now that I'm talking about bribery and things like that, I got to talk a little bit about this uh, college admission scandal uh, that is a big, big story. Right, over 50 people indicted, uh, basically for this scam, where you know wealthy people were able to pay an individual who had a lot of influence or had a lot of connections at universities. Uh, mainly with uh, coaches, people that were, uh, you know, in, in athletic department where they can dumb up phony athletic scholarships or not necessarily scholarships where but the coach or something would would let the admissions board know that, hey, we really like this guy because he's, you know, he he you know, he could, he's good at a particular sport that I need. And so that would give the applicants, you know, that would make their application more likely to be accepted if there was a coach that said, yeah, I want that guy. For, for my team, but also they, he had uh, individuals that were helping him basically forge the SATs so that uh, they would put in a dummy uh, exam, a proctor or somebody would take the exam instead of the student. And in many cases, what I read, the students didn't even realize this, that the students went in there and they, they did the SAT, but um, their exam wasn't actually the one that was collected, that the, the stooge was in there and he was taking the test. And then that other version was being submitted. And, you know, in order to do this, they had a bribe, maybe some of the proctors or they had to change locations or there. But this the guy that was doing this was able to arrange this. And people were paying large sums of money. In fact, I read one one couple, I think, paid as much as a half a million dollars. Uh, to get their kids into – I think this one was was USC, which really it shows you. I mean, when I was uh, in in California, I mean, it was a lot easier to get into USC. It wasn't that big a deal. I mean, anybody that paid the tuition – I remember when I went to the the football games, I was at Cal – and when we would play USC, everybody would take credit cards in their in their hand, and you would kind of wave the credit cards in the in the air, basically acknowledging that yes, the only thing you need to get into USC is the money to pay the tuition. Uh, but apparently now that's not enough. Apparently it's a lot harder to get into USC. But a lot of the the schools that were involved were Ivy League schools, right? That are much much harder to get into even than than, than USC. And people were spending a lot of money. Apparently, they were writing these checks to a charity, and then uh, to disguise the fact that they were basically, you know, paying bribes uh, to get their kids into into a good school, which also may put these individual. Uh, parents in trouble with the irs because the irs may say hey these were not legitimate charities and if you took a charitable deduction we're going to disallow that and now we're going to put interest in penalties because when you make a donation to charity right you're not supposed to get receive anything in exchange for your donation you're supposed to just be making the donation but if you wrote a check and what you received was you your kid got into harvard because she wrote this check, well, then it wasn't a charitable donation. You you paid to get into Harvard, and so, but a lot, I'm sure a lot of people wrote it off, which is probably one of the reasons that they that they you know they set it up as a charitable donation because that reduced the after tax cost to the parents of paying these bribes. But what I really want to talk about is the fact that this is going on, and you know I'm not going to excuse uh, the parents. For, for what they did, but I, I certainly understand what they did. As a parent, I understand that. And I, I sympathize with the predicament that they're in. Uh, and it really shows you the problem uh, from another angle that the U.S. government has created when it comes to higher education. Um, because everybody now goes to college, right? It's pretty much, you have to go, right? Now, I'm, I'm hoping this changes, and that this whole college bubble pops and people realize that they're being sold a bill of goods. And the vast majority of people who go to college would be better off not going. And I would love to see a situation where more and more employers recognize how college degrees basically mean nothing and start looking for more effective ways to screen their job applicants other than, did you go to college? Uh, so people can actually take advantage of uh, the internet and all the tools that are at that exposure to actually learn stuff on their own instead of just getting a degree, right? Just spending five, six years in college uh, to basically buy what amounts to a worthless degree. There are other ways to basically demonstrate uh, your competence, uh, and, and why you could be a, a, a potential hire. Because most of what uh, you know people do for their employer, they don't learn in school. They, they learn it on the job, right? So what the employer is just looking for in a college grad is, well, let me just screen my applicants. At least, you know, let's not look at the people who didn't go to college because they expect that the college grads are you know, at least a higher level of competency and would be more easy to learn and absorb the information uh, that they w- w- would be teaching them on the job. But it's a very expensive way uh, to show that. But the, the problem is now with everybody going to college, what matters is that you went to a great college, right? Because that's the way you can differentiate yourself, right? When hardly anybody went to college, when a high school diploma actually meant something, Right. Which means nothing. Now, at one time, just having a high school diploma was, you know, was evidence that you were competent, that you graduated high school and you actually learned something. Because back then, people who graduated high school, you actually had to learn something to to pass. Now, you know, they'll pass you no matter what. I mean, you could graduate high school and be functionally illiterate. I mean, that wasn't the case 50 years ago, 100 years ago. You know, they wouldn't they wouldn't just pass you if you didn't if you didn't learn the subject matter. You, you you wouldn't graduate. But now they graduate everybody. In fact, at a lot of universities now, when I went to Berkeley, even way back when, I'm sure it's worse now. But a lot of the freshmen had remedial English. They had remedial math. I mean, come on. I mean, if you couldn't learn this stuff by the end of your 12th grade, why even go to college? I mean, it's nonsense. And I'm sure, again, it's, it's, it's even worse now. But so everybody graduates high school, means nothing. So now everybody has to go to college. And of course, everybody goes to college because the government subsidizes everybody to go. Right? The government loans you the money. First, they guaranteed your loans, but now they just give you the money. They loan you the money so you can pay these inflated tuitions. And so everybody goes to college. And so based on supply and demand, just having a college degree doesn't mean anything. It means less than what a high school degree used to mean. So how do you differentiate yourself you go to a top-notch school, right? You go to an Ivy League school. Well, everybody wants to go to those schools now, so the competition is ferocious. I mean, I don't even think I could get into Berkeley today. You know, it's a lot harder to get in now uh, than it was when when I got it. I don't. I mean, my my SAT scores were nowhere near what would you would need to get into that school today, right? I don't think my GPA. I mean, I think now pretty much. I mean, a 4.0 isn't even enough. You got to have more than that because you have to have a lot of courses where you can get more than a four, right? You have to have these advanced placement courses or a lot of honors or stuff like that. And you, you almost got the ace your SATs, right? Because not only is there so much competition now to get into these schools, but you have the schools also, you know, making it easier for certain individuals to get in, right? They, they they lower the hurdle, they lower the bar if you're a minority, right? If you're African-American or if you're Hispanic or if you're Native American or maybe if you're coming from certain zip codes where there's, you know, uh, relative lower income uh, people, right? I mean, they're trying to supposedly get a broad, diverse college population and making it easier for certain groups and certain people to get in. And so that means that the slots uh, for people who don't fall into those groups are, are smaller and smaller. And then, of course, also, if you're an athlete, right if you if you have a if you're very good at a particular sport well then they'll they'll make it easier for you to get in so but those athletes are taking up slots and so now there's fewer available for people who aren't athletes and who aren't in a minority favored group right that's getting preferential treatment so if you're just a typical white guy from an affluent community i mean unless you've got Great. I mean, you've got 1600 on your SATs. I mean, you got four point whatever on your GPA and you've got great extracurriculars unless you've got that or you have some great connections. Somehow you've got personal friends on the admission board or, you know, maybe you're you know, you're 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 a legacy. Your father went to the school. Your grandfather went to the school. I mean, unless you've got some kind of special in, you've got no chance. Right. If you're just your typical white guy from an upper income family without the connections and without the athletic, well, you're, you're not getting into one of these top schools. And I can see the frustration, especially with the parents because parents always want the best for their kids and they may feel somewhat guilty. Hey, if I didn't have as much money if I, as I did, if I, we didn't live in this affluent community, maybe it would be easier for my kid to get into one of these schools, but because I'm very successful and because I, you know, I live in a, an expensive zip code and because I'm white, whatever, my kid can't get in. Well, all right, well, maybe I have to pay this bribe. Maybe this is what I have to do. Maybe we have to uh, cheat on the exams. That's the only way I can level the playing field for my kid, right? So my kid, you know, cause she, he doesn't qualify or she doesn't qualify for any of these other special treatments. So this is what I got to do in order to level. I could see the pressure uh, why, why people are doing this. And of course, you know, I'm sure once these kids get in to the school, they probably do fine. Right. I mean, I mean, that's the problem too, is now once you get into a lot of these schools, it's not that hard. I mean, and there's so much great inflation in these schools and the schools, you know, they don't want to flunk the kids. They don't want the kids dropping out. They want everybody graduating. See, I would much rather see far fewer people going to college, number one, because the government stopped subsidizing it, right? There's no more government loans and government guaranteed loans and direct grants. So people aren't going to college. And of course, then colleges have to cut prices, right? Because nobody could, nobody could afford to go really at the prices that they are now. But, you know, if people then wanted to buy their way into a college, maybe that, you know, wealthy families could, you know, pay the freight and their kids could go into college. They wouldn't have to cheat or pay bribes but what i would rather have is the colleges basically uh have a a stricter curve where they grade uh your work and 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 so that what would be important wasn't that oh where did you go to school oh i went to yale i went to harvard okay but where did you finish were you at the top of your class what was your gpa i mean don't make it so it's so hard to get in make it so it's hard to do well right now the hardest part is getting in. Once you're in, you pretty much coast. And a lot of people aren't even worried about where they place in their class. I mean, sure, it'd be great to, you know, especially if you want to go on to graduate school, right? If you want to go and, and go to med school or if you want to go to law school, then I suppose a lot of that may may, may count. But in general, um, you know, if, if undergraduate is all you're doing, I mean, it, it, what really counts is, okay, where'd you go to college? Okay, great, right? You know, your GPA. Uh, isn't as important. And people realize it. They give out everybody gets A's, right? A's, A minus B. I mean, it's easy. It wasn't that easy 50, 100 years ago. It was easier to get in, but it was harder to get a really good grade. Now it's really hard to get in, but once you're in, you know, you're pretty much, you're pretty much done. So this is the system that has been created. It benefits the educational establishment, right? They make a lot of money because you have so many people buying these overpriced, worthless degrees. You have all these customers using government money to pay inflated tuitions, but now you've got the point where, you know, you've got certain people that are really left out and that they cannot get into these top-notch schools because it is so competitive and they don't have any special advantage. You know, one advantage uh, that you could have a lot of these families, instead of paying all these bribes, they should have just moved here to Puerto Rico because, you know, one of the reasons that people are coming to Puerto Rico or one of the one of the benefits of coming to Puerto Rico uh, is that not only do you you know save on your taxes dramatically and get good weather, but. The kids that graduate from the private high schools here, you know, 40, 50 percent of them go to Ivy League colleges and they don't have to pay any bribes. And, you know, I'm sure their test scores are fine and their grades are fine. But the reason so many people from these schools are going to these colleges is because the colleges want people from Puerto Rico. That's another box that they could check. You're Puerto Rican. You know, you're from this zip code. It's an underserved zip code, right? Not as many people are coming to these schools from Puerto Rico. So, uh, you know, if you are applying from Puerto Rico, you have you have a leg up. So that's another reason. If you are, are thinking about relocating here, uh, that's another reason to do so. But again, the reason I wanted to to bring this up is this is all a creation of the government, right? The government's subsidy of education, driving up the price, driving up demand. And then all of the uh, affirmative action programs and all the, the legal and the lawsuits and all that basically has driven uh, certain parents to do things that they know are wrong, right? But they're doing them anyway because they love their kids and they want the best for their kids. It's like, you know, the, the classic example of somebody steals food because, you know, they need to feed their family. I mean, yes, they know that stealing is wrong, uh, but then again, the, the, you know, s- their family is starving so that they stole. And you know, th- this is not about starving, but you're talking about parents who love their kids, who want the best for their kids, and they know that in today's society, kids have to go to a top-notch school, and their kids aren't getting in, and so they're they're doing what they can uh, to to get their kids into school. Now everybody wants to act like, oh my God, this is like this is the biggest uh, you know a uh, crime that's going on, but you know where. The, the finger of blame, again, if it's going to be other than the government, it should be at these universities uh, that are allowing this and the their athletic departments and the professors who are taking the bribes. I don't, you know, say, hey, obviously, the parents want the best for their kids. But why are these people in school basically accepting bribes to lie and forge documents and the people who are, you know taking these exams and proctoring these exams and committing the fraud. I mean, I think that is where uh, the the real criminality should be. I, you know, I, I tend to, again, look a lot more leniently on, on parents who, you know, are just thinking about their kids. Now, in some cases, you know, maybe it's not so much the kids. I mean, they maybe they, they enjoy bragging about the fact that their kids are going to a top locked school. I mean, maybe that also reflects well on them, hey, my kids are so smart because I raised them so well or I got such good genes that, look, my kid's going to Yale, my kid's going to Harvard. So it's not necessarily always, hey, it's just about the kids because, you know, there probably is, uh, you know, uh, you know, some bragging going on, some competition among parents that want to see their kids going to a good school as a reflection of their own parenting Right. But by and large, I think that the parents are, are motivated by a desire uh, to help their kids and all parents can um, can sympathize with that. Hey, so I want to make a point. I'm not sure how many podcasts I'm going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. I'm leaving tomorrow uh, for the cruise. I'm doing the real estate guy cruise summit at sea. I won't be back until March 24th. I know at sea the internet connection is really, really slow. And so when I try to upload a podcast, it takes forever. So I'm not sure how many I'm going to do. What I may try to do is just do some, maybe some short updates, particularly if something particularly big happens while I'm at sea, I may try to short, you know, just record a short podcast, which won't take as as, as much time to upload. So, but if, if you're not seeing as many uh, then that might be why, because I am, I am uh, out at sea. By the way, if you're not going to be on the summit, your next chance to see me in person, unless you just happen to be strolling along on the beach here in Puerto Rico, uh, would be to come to the Las Vegas Money Show. I'm going to be appearing there. It's May 13th through the 15th, Bally's Paris uh, Hotel. So if you're in the Vegas area, obviously just come on down. Uh, I'll have a booth there. I'll be doing, you know, my main talk, my workshop, but you still have time to uh, buy a plane ticket. Probably not on a Boeing 37 Max 8, Uh, but I think it was only uh, Southwest and American that were even flying those planes. So, and now that they're grounded, uh, but even if they ungrounded them, I think a lot of people are going to shy away from those planes, uh, just to be on the safe side, but there are plenty of other airlines that service to Las Vegas airport and Gre- Vegas is a great place to visit. A uh, great excuse to go there is to see Peter Schiff at the money show. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, um, you have to sign up online at moneyshow.com. It's free, right? doesn't require any cost, but you do need to register in advance so that you can get your badges when you show up and, uh, you know, you'll be admitted to all of the events. So for now, uh, I'm going to be off on this cruise. And when I come back, I will be a year older. You know, this is a birthday trip cruise. I am going to be 56 years old on March 23rd. That is going to be the final night of the cruise. You know, my mother's birthday is the first night of the cruise. And my birthday is the last night of the cruise. So looking forward to seeing uh, whoever of my podcast listeners is going to be with us at the summit. Otherwise, I'll you know be doing the podcast as I have an opportunity and as the, uh, the ship uh, internet connection makes that possible. <music>